1: Spiritual emergency can be seen as a crisis in connection without resources to re-establish connection. Experiencers, we feel less connection to all that is, a.k.a. God, the universe. Our dreams are chaotic and leave us disturbed on waking. We have fears we didn't used to have and imagine bad outcomes. We may wonder, i.e., Am I crazy? We may push others away, i.e., maybe they are nuts. We long for the connection we used to have when our meditation was deep and our spiritual community very close. What drives the crisis deeper? We may be suffering fear of loss or deep loss, death of a loved one, loss of a job or role in the community or seeing the erosion of governmental institutions designed to keep us safe and secure. Our community and inner resources for facing challenges make the difference between crisis and vast positive potential. The global pandemic has thrown many of us into this kind of loss of connection we never thought possible. Cooped up home alone or with partner and kids for months Stressed out by the irritations they present day after day, no alternative life at a workplace, none of the sweet distractions like restaurants, coffee houses, schools, concerts, religious events, and community dances that helped keep us in balance. No hugs with friends that affirmed belonging to a wider community, Masks hiding others' human responses at shared events, contributing to less connection. The economic crisis and focus on racial prejudice and social injustice erode the very foundations of connection to life as well. Resources we used to have are gone or diminished. So, we are suffering some or maybe lots of loss of connection, but... Is that all bad? Throughout the ages, individuals have paid dearly to go on retreat, to isolate themselves from society. They deliberately let go of the known for a period of time. Even consider that of value. Why? To reconnect with their God. To take their spiritual practices deeper via more meditation, prayer, and scriptural study. To focus more fully on yoga, Tai Chi, or specific movements that bring more peace and harmony. To revitalize by connecting with nature and animals without distraction. To reevaluate their direction in life and seek vision for next steps. If we value the isolation, we look at it this way. Time to immerse in close relationships like family can restore and deepen bonds. A trusting relationship with a mentor or counselor can restore an acceptance with and care of oneself, just as a pastoral or spiritual counselor can help inspire one's connection to the spiritual realms, writes Dr. Emma Bragdon. Valeria interviews Dr. Emma. She is the Executive Director of Integrative Mental Health for You, IMHU.org. They offer 34 online courses aimed at helping individuals have optimal mental health. Dr. Bragdon has been a pioneer in the field of spiritual emergency, crises that are associated with personal evolution. She was licensed as a psychotherapist in 1998 and has a private practice online and in Vermont. She also teaches online courses, has published seven books, and co-produced two documentary films about spiritual healing in Brazil. Here is the interview with Emma Bragdon.
0: In your own words, who is Emma Bragdon? Oh, that's interesting
2: <laughs> question <laughs> to start off with. So, Emma Emma Bragdon is um, a woman that I would like to consider an elder because she's past uh, sixty five and has been doing a lot of meditation and study in her life, and so hopefully has more compassion as well as a bit more wisdom than she had when she was um, 15. Mm. (laughs) I identify myself as someone who, who loves to meditate at this point in my life, and along with that, I do have some professional things that I do. For instance, I'm Um, professional coach. Some people think of me as a psychologist, but I prefer the word coach because it really is a movement towards helping people find their goal, just like in a sport, you know, (laughs) making a goal. So I, I like that word coach. And I'm also the executive director of an online learning program called integrative mental health for you. And we offer about 34 different courses. Uh, most of them online, but some of them, you know, in live workshops. And uh, I started that seven years ago because I was so, so deeply moved by what I saw in Brazil after over 10 years of of spending a good deal of time there, six months out of every year for 10 years. And I was deeply impressed by some of the spiritist movement and what they were in particular doing for people who were in a spiritual crisis. So the online learning programs that I offer aren't just about spiritual crisis, but I I came to believe, and actually in my graduate school, I came to believe that our approach to spirituality is really um extremely important in terms of finding optimal well-being. And oftentimes... You know, when when people are out of touch with themselves as a spiritual being and themselves in communion or personal connection to whatever they call a higher force, whether it be God or divine mother or whatever it is, when people are out of touch with that, that's when the uh, mental disturbances or emotional disturbances can happen. So. So reconnecting in in those ways, reconnecting with whatever we consider is of spirit, and it may be as general as calling it love or the source of of all or creator. That uh, that that really can be at the heart of um, recovery
0: or optimal well being. That's interesting that you mentioned the spirituality in being in. Connected to this spirit, because I think I got yeah an email this week from a scientist, and I remember he said, "Hey, I looked at your podcast, and I noticed that you have a lot of people talking about spirituality, but there's no science behind that." And <laughs> I was thinking to myself, like, um, "What is the science behind love?" And good luck in finding evidence for that. How wonderful it is to to love and to be loved.
2: Absolutely. Well, there there is it depends on where you look and and also what words you use when you're looking. But certainly, you know, positive psychology, which is a domain in and of itself, tells us that that, uh, you know, loving connection, loving, supportive connection is extremely important in terms of enjoying your life. And and also if you Google with the term meditation and you look for Research studies—you'll find a lot of studies right now that that say that meditation is bringing us more peace and more satisfaction. And um, and so it 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 is true that there haven't been a lot of research studies on spirituality as a general term. So I can understand why this gentleman was coming from that point of view but it all depends on what word you use when you start searching
0: before we talk about the two topics i guess it might be connected as well the upside of the global spiritual crisis and spiritual emergency Mm -hmm. i have a few warm-up questions as i mentioned off record so the first one emma is what is life to you what is life to me? Oh my gosh.
2: Well, along with the spiritists, I would say that that life provides an opportunity for spiritual evolution. And that may be, in fact, what life is all about for everyone, but some of us gravitate towards that. Particular path and others don't. <laughs> so that's that's one answer. And then the other answer comes really more from a yogic philosophy. And I'm a practitioner of a, a kind of yogic meditation. So, in in their words, which I think actually coincide with the spiritists, but are different. And it basically life is about uh, maintaining our close connection to God or spirit or whatever you want to call it, the creator, and at the same time enjoying the gifts of creation. But the communion, uh, having a personal connection to God or creator is really at the heart of of life, and it can be extremely (laughs) difficult uh, to maintain that connection when we're bombarded by all of the drama in life and we have lots of emotional reactions to it i mean especially now with the pandemic and on top of it all the protests with the uh around race racism i mean the the news is full of all kinds of emotional reactivity and of course we would have that with the financial fallout that's going on right now as well as Political fallout that's happening. I mean, on every single level that of um, what we consider our the foundation of our life, we're being severely challenged. So it's hard, I think, to maintain just a loving, peaceful connection with Creator while, in the midst of it, we're wondering about: oh, Do we have enough money to buy food for our children, or can we pay the rent, or when am I going to be
0: able to go back to work, and am I going to get sick? <laughs> What do you think is the opposite of life?
2: Well, it's certainly not death. (laughs) Because from my perception, uh, life continues on. And uh, after we leave this particular life, we move into something that is just a a different kind of life. And so it could very well be, and I happen to believe it is, that we're eternal beings. So the opposite of life, what what a question. I would say... Uh, that the opposite of life would be re- would really be uh, denial of connection to spirit, denial of connection to to love, or ignorance of that. Uh, being out of touch with love, being out of touch with spirit uh, for whatever reason, whether it's ignorance or or whether it's um, a sense of profound disappointment in life that that uh, takes us to a point where we say, well, there can't be anything good because I'm in despair. So uh, that kind of darkness or ignorance, I would say, would be would, would put us in
0: opposition to what life has to offer. In your bio, you wrote this section here. You said there's got to be a way of life in which people are truly happy and not drowning their sorrows in alcohol or hiding them under psychiatric medications the question for you is, what is spiritual emergency? And uh, is that the same as spiritual crisis? Are they connected somehow? You, you know, it's at, at this point, I think it's a,
2: a real word game, Valeria, because uh, spiritual emergency isn't really accepted fully in, in our um, vocabulary. It's not a call a kitchen table uh, word yeah. and so it's new for a lot of people and and when people think of spiritual crisis i think they think they um connect it with a, a kind of existential crisis like maybe something that a, a young person would would go through uh, right around college age or perhaps younger but uh those existential questions like what is life about what is the opposite of life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh and who am i and what are my gifts and what would be what do i want to do with my life i mean (laughs) those those kinds of questions can throw a lot of us into a difficult challenging place but uh, spiritual emergency is a word that was well actually two words that were that were coined in um the 1970s by stan and christina graf and what they realized is that Some people are moving into higher states of consciousness and then feeling very disoriented because our culture or and especially at that time in the 1970s really didn't have the language to describe um, higher states of consciousness. But more and more people were reading um, literature from the Far East or taking on meditation, taking on yoga practices, taking on martial arts practices, trying um, sacred medicines, um, herbs to change their consciousness. So there were a lot of changes going on and people who were heavy, going into expanded states of consciousness needed a particular kind of guidance and support so that they could make that spiritual emergency, if they were feeling acute disorientation, it would be an emergency, but they could, they could um, integrate the lessons they could get from that um, expansion of consciousness and have it really improve the quality of their life. So Stan Grof, who, was a psychi- who is a psychiatrist, really wanted to create a support network for people in this kind of spiritual emergency. And he would likely say, well, spiritual emergency is the same as spiritual crisis. But in fact, it uh, we could say it's the same. It includes a kind of existential crisis. But then on the other hand, there are lots of different ways that people have expanded states of consciousness now that aren't ne- necessarily connected to an existential crisis. For instance, a near-death experience. More and more people are you know, being resuscitated uh, because of our equipment in hospitals these days. And they may, people who have near-death experiences may have even flatlined. In other words, shown no brain activity for a period of time. And people around them, the health healthcare providers would say, well, this person's gone. But then that person, because of the resuscitation equipment, may come back and report some amazing experiences for instance, talking to beings on on a spiritual level that, um, that would throw the person experiencing it into a sense of real disorientation. And if that kind of uh, experience, talking to spirits, or in, I'm thinking about Eben Alexander, a, a neurosurgeon who never believed in near-death experience, and then he had a bacterial meningitis and he was basically flatlining for most of a week, and he came back to life fully and said, I, not, I, I talked to my sister who died years ago. I had experiences uh, where I felt that I was connecting to God in a way that I'd never connected before. And he completely transformed his life around so that he's now assisting people uh, to move into higher states of consciousness without dying mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. without going through an extremely stressful experience. Anyway, there are a lot more ways that people can reach into expanded states of consciousness these days since the 1970s. So I would say just the way we use language, we think, well, spiritual crisis is kind of like an existential crisis, or maybe it's some um, a sense of betrayal by one's faith. For instance, all the pedophilia that's gone on in the catholic church which of course goes on in other uh churches as well it's not unique to catholicism but if one is is very identified with one's religious life and then all of a sudden feels deeply betrayed by the uh re religion because of some of the um activity, immoral activity going on, then that can also throw someone into a spiritual crisis. But spiritual emergency is really about moving into higher states of consciousness and then getting disoriented because it changes your whole worldview and even changes maybe what you want to do in your life. And then you need to reevaluate and then reorder your life and basically take time out to do
0: that. How is a spiritual crisis different from mental illness?
2: Well, one of the reasons it's important for us to find language for spiritual crisis and spiritual emergency is because we are much more um, used to the language of psychopathology. And if someone, for instance, uh, walked into an emergency room or talked to a psychiatrist who is not oriented towards a kind of spiritual psychology. And if that person said, you know, I'm hearing a voice in my head. And as soon as, um, and and that that voice might actually be kind of the um, preview (laughs) for that person, that they have a gift in channeling, channeling wiser beings. But the psychiatrist might hear the words, I'm hearing voices and think, okay, that's a symptom of psychosis. This person needs antipsychotics and they need it soon so that those voices will stop. Yeah. So we're, we're in a very difficult situation here where we don't really have language to differentiate spiritual, the, 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 the some of the things that can happen, the phenomena that can happen with a spiritual crisis um, and, and how, it's really different than psychopathology. And from my point of view, you know, everyone needs to understand what a spiritual emergency is so they can not only assist themselves, but help their loved ones if that uh, kind of situation arises. But very importantly, healthcare providers need to be able to understand that spiritual emergency and spiritual crisis exist. And they're in a different category than psychopathology. And and people in a spiritual crisis need a diff- different kind of support. If, if someone's in a spiritual crisis and they haven't slept for two or three days, then certainly some kind of a pharmaceutical might be the most compassionate response in order to help them sleep and recover their uh, balance. But on the other hand, if someone is hearing voices, and they're generally stable and have had, you know, they're in stable relationships, they're enjoy their work, but all of a sudden this starts happening to them and adjacent to their stable life, <laughs> then to be told that they're in a psychotic process is not helpful. And it so we, we have to stop this kind of automatic thinking that, oh, if you hear voices, that means you're psychotic. And educate ourselves so that we can more easily discern when is someone in a spiritual emergency and needs support for it and when is someone in, um, in a situation probably related to their stress <laughs> uh, in in which they they really need the the um, services of someone who's very well tutored in psychopathology and and hopefully someone who can, who can help that person with the mo- a very modest amount of psychiatric medications.
0: <laughs> and that leads me to something that I read in your biography and you mentioned briefly earlier. It's about the experience you had in Brazil with spiritist healing and connection between spirituality and well-being. Talk to me about that, Emma.
2: I was first invited to teach trainers actually to teach teachers (laughs) in brazil about a a particular nine-day course i was teaching in called the avatar course and so i went to brazil with that in mind and i was planning on being there for a little under two weeks and then leaving but but, um i i visited uh john of god uh, oh quite a well-known spiritual healer at the time this was in 2001 and um i had a a very powerful energetic experience that was just beyond words when i met him and then as a result of of that meeting and some strong experiences that happened right in that first week of being there i decided to spend more time at that center and actually to bring people who were ill for healing there because i i saw a lot of results going on so over the course of the of 2001 to 2012, when I, when I was spending some time there, I saw people being, uh, healed of alcoholism, profound mental illness. I heard one doctor, um, and a Brazilian MD tell a story of how he had been physically dead and literally in a morgue situation in a hospital <laughs> and uh, and then it come back to life. And uh, I was so impressed with what I was seeing in terms of the kind of healing people were getting. And I, I want to say one of the most profound bits of it was I uh, accompanied some people down there who were struggling in some of the last stages of cancer. And uh, one of the thoughts uh, in John of God Center was, you know healing might not mean that you no longer have cancer healing might mean that you die in total peace mm, and wow. that your family is with you and they are also in peace which was a stunning way of looking at it so i saw some people healed and, and talked to people who were healed of brain cancer uh fourth stage and i also was accompanying families who attained a a kind of peace about the cancer that one of them was having. And I later heard that that there was this very, very beautiful passage of, of dying that, the person who was sick experienced, and the family experienced, that goes way beyond what I'd ever seen before. That's one answer to your question. <laughs> but the other answer is that I was very drawn to see what the what the Spiritists were doing in their psychiatric hospitals because I'm trained as a psychologist, and one of the most um, impactful things that I saw, which is very different than what we have in the United States, is that. Uh, mediums who were extremely well trained, um, perhaps several decades of training, were allowed, well, invited in to work with some of the patients. And some of the mediums were uh, very well trained in energy work, and would give the the patients the energy work within the psychiatric hospital. And some people were extremely well trained. On, on a level where they could be medical intuitives and really get into the depth of why a person has a particular mental disturbance and what kind of treatment or support they need in order to be balanced again. And in some cases, there was a process going on called disobsession, which had to do with the interaction of spirits with the person who was um, mentally disturbed. And the mediums were trained not only to identify in very clear terms what was that dynamic or that relationship, negative relationship that was going on, but also how to help the person become detached from that influence and also help the being that was negatively influencing the human being to help that disembodied being to go on into the light. So it was a practice of tremendous love and presence. <laughs> there were other elements that go on in the spiritist psychiatric hospital that also deeply impressed me. For instance, the idea of of having someone come in who is a spiritist who is not coming in to make sure that you become a spiritist, but mm-hmm, <laughs> to yeah. God, fellowship and a, a loving connection, and we would call that peer support in Within psychology in the United States, but it's a particular kind of peer support because it, uh, the people who offered themselves to do this kind of volunteer work within the hospitals were really oriented to, uh, assist in spiritual evolution for the, in their own evolution, as well as the evolution of the people that they were, uh, being with. So again, this was not about, trying to make people into spiritus, but offer loving connection. And I I was so deeply impressed and continue to be <laughs> by by just those elements. And certainly there were more elements, but I don't think we have time to go into that.
0: <laughs> I love that too. But I was not familiar with those mediums in psychiatric hospitals. So I'm wondering if this can happen here in the United States.
2: Well um, I, I'm actually asked um, frequently, where can I go? I mean, from people in the United States, where can I go to be with the kind of mediums that they are, that they have in Brazil, for this kind of uh, unusual work? And there there are 70 spiritist centers that uh, approximately 70 in the United States, but very few of them actually have working um, groups of mediums who are offering. What in Brazil is called disobsession, uh, in, in England it's called spirit release. But there, there are um, individual practitioners in the United States who do something akin to spirit release, and they work generally by themselves. But um, I don't know of any hospital that accepts this kind of work. In fact, I I volunteered with a group of other people who are well trained in energy work. I volunteered to go in and help some of the patients in a psychiatric ward in Vermont, one of our largest. And they just said they, they couldn't accept it. And even, even though, you know, I'm, <laughs> I was trained in energy, energy work is also a psychologist and, and the people I were uh, was affiliated with were also medical doctors or priests. <laughs> they still thought it was unsafe for us to come in and do the energy work. So. From the point of view of the way psychiatry and psychology is practiced in the United States, some of what happens in the spiritist psychiatric hospitals in Brazil is radical, absolutely radical. And it, it um that point of view rests in I think the conversation you brought up, you know, someone who was a scientist saying there's no science behind spirituality. Right. So Unfortunately, you know, our mainstream psychiatry and psychology has uh, a lot of limitations yeah. and is
0: into new things in some ways. That's why I love the word that you use in your work, integrative. So in a way, it's bringing everything together because human beings, everything is the body, mind and the spirit. And we cannot work one area without addressing the other. So maybe one day, do you have hope that one day this integrative, this whole we call wholeness way of living and dealing with our, with humans and in all kinds of professions, do you think that one day this will happen?
2: Oh yes, I think we're going in that direction. One way I look at it is that in the 1960s and 1970s. People were led to believe that um, psychiatric medications held great promise to help people move out of terrible symptoms they were having of mental disturbance. But the psych meds have not fulfilled that promise, and that's become extremely evident. (laughs) So um, we have to look for something else, you know, in terms of why is it that people have mental disturbance and what do they need in order to move into greater health? And that conversation is going on right now, even though mainstream medicine still uses psych meds as if that's the best standard of care. uh, If you look more deeply into, well, what are the, you know, the heads of the National Institute of Mental Health and people of that altitude, (laughs) what are they conversing about? And what they're conversing about is we don't know the cause of mental illness. And well, it's a good sign, right? I mean, you have to humble yourself to say something like that if
0: you're a psychiatrist and you're the head of the National Institute of Mental Health. <laughs> <laughs> what is the meaning of freedom to you, Emma? What is to be free? Yeah, to be free. Wow. You know, I have freedom very,
2: very linked with discipline right now in my life. So I have to answer you in a very personal way. <laughs> And, and that is, um, I do lead quite a disciplined life and in terms of being very disciplined with, uh, eating well, uh, trying to eat organic produce. For instance, having lots of fruit and veggies, making sure that I have supplements, um, making sure I get enough exercise, you know, all of those kind of basic things, but also to meditate twice a day and, uh so a lot of people i think would look at my life and say wow she's like she's living in a convent or something what's going on with her <laughs> <Sorry>. no, <that's laughs> but cute. um but actually you know what this kind of life has brought for me is a sense of um deep personal connection and communion with spirit and out of that i feel uh, a kind of limitlessness in other words God, for me, represents love, but it's a kind of infinite love that has no limits at all. And if I feel my personal connection to God through my meditation and through bringing that the Creator into my just everyday life, and I feel closer then to that sense of infinite love, infinite bliss, infinite presence, And to me, that
0: is a source of tremendous freedom. I love that. And that made me think about another question. Do you connect this, your kind of practice, to being a way to avoid spiritual crisis and spiritual emergencies? Gee, that's a hard one to answer very quickly because I've had
2: the great good fortune, Valeria, of being with some very highly evolved spiritual teachers. And that started actually when I was uh, 20 years old. I, my teacher was Suzuki Roshi, a Zen Buddhist um, priest who was considered to be enlightened. And to start life from that point of view, and then also be listening to his lectures where he was describing some of the deep philosophy, and then living in the a um, situation where I had interaction with him every day, It was an extraordinary model for deep meditation and also bringing meditation into one's daily life. And a lot of people don't have that kind of modeling going on. And so if a a person just maybe feels very distraught because life is not going the way they want it to go and perhaps they... Don't feel good about themselves, and then they start um, isolating from the world and they start meditating long hours without any social contact and without any kind of anchoring with a spiritual teacher and a philosophy then they it's possible they can get into real trouble so i'm I'm a firm believer that the spiritual path is like a razor's edge, <laughs> and we we do need Uh, spiritual teachers and hopefully highly evolved spiritual teachers that can really help us if we get into trouble. And how could we not get into trouble sometimes just because of all the drama that's going on in life? You know, it's it's not easy. Yes. I feel a, a huge debt of gratitude to the spiritual
0: teachers that I've had in my life. That brings me to another question. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? Oh, that's, <laughs> that has so, that question has so much in
2: it, but I would hope that as we go into, go face these crises that we're facing right now, that it take, uh, well, for instance, that the solitude, if, if well used, in other words, the stay at home, <laughs> if well used, can actually give us time to sort out our priorities. What is most important? And Possibly, you know, for some people that will mean, well, my family's most important and having loving relationships in my family and with my friends is most important. And now I think we're, we're seeing that kind of, uh, clarity around our priorities being expressed very strongly in the protests. In other words, black like me and, um, and people who are standing up and saying, we, we don't want to tolerate racism anymore. So there's been a, you know, in terms of what do we need? I, I think ultimately what we need more is more connection to love, whether we call that God or, or not, but more connection to love, which will bring us into a more kind of, uh, a a society or culture that's based on compassion and, uh, bringing everyone, no matter what the color of their skin, uh, what they essentially need, you know, providing the basics for everybody on the planet. And so ultimately, I think that's what we all need. And my sense is that um, people can discover that huge body of compassion and love when they meditate more So, and, and connect with the God-self, because each of us are a spark of the divine. So when we connect with the God self in whatever way we do that, and there are many ways, it takes people into a a deeper compassion and uh, also a a deeper desire to be in service and to help our fellow man. So I would say that that's the most important. And of course, along with that comes a feeling of empathy, being able to feel for other people. And uh, hopefully our politics and our social
0: structures will move more and more in that direction. I'm wondering if we can find the spiritual teacher within. Is that possible? Valeria, that's a great question. And I, I do think, you know, for many people that they,
2: they can find the voice of their higher self within and it can give them a tremendous sense of guidance. And that might be totally sufficient, but um, I the danger I think lies with people who are starting from a place of of despair or dis uh, disappointment in life and disappointment in themselves and then they isolate and they they use uh, the practice of meditation to continue to isolate and basically hole up with their despair and so that certainly isn't everybody but Uh, There are so many different meditation practices now, and it's totally wonderful to see so many people taking initiative and moving into whatever practice uh, appeals to them and becoming more intuitive so that they can follow what their inner
0: guidance tells them, which is oftentimes the right way to go. You wrote two books on spiritual emergency in 1988 and 1990. So my question is, what was the inspiration for writing these books?
2: When, when the Groffs created the Spiritual Emergence, Emergence Network in 1980, I heard about it quite soon afterwards. And I all I wanted to do was, was go work there yeah. for them. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't in a, in a life situation where I could do that. And instead, I, I took a right turn, as it were, <laughs> and went to graduate school. And then... Um, I I continued my my interest in it. And because I had developed such an interest, I was asked to create two invited conferences for psychiatrists, psychologists, spiritual leaders to come together and say, what is spiritual emergency? How can we identify it? How can we bring it into the study of psychology? And how what kind of treatment do people need? Not treatment really, but support, when they're going through it. And that the the two invited conferences that i put together then became uh part of my dissertation and then became the first book which was a source book for helping people in spiritual emergency so so on an uh, on that kind of academic level that's that's how that book started and then harper san francisco saw that first book and and actually came to me and said would you write another book for us so that was a, a nice thing to have happened when I was just finishing graduate school. But on a on a personal level, my mother actually was followed in my footsteps and got involved in meditation uh, after I had gotten involved, and she also was was uh, very impressed with Suzuki Roshi, the Japanese Zen master I I mentioned earlier. And um, unfortunately, in 1971, so that was. 10 years before I went to graduate school. In 1971, she died, and apparently it was very deeply connected to some distorted thinking that she had about death being a release into freedom. And so the idea is that she actually suicided with the notion that it would take her closer to
0: enlightenment, which would clearly be a spiritual crisis. (laughs) It's another emergency topic. It's uh, suicide. Yes, it happens a lot, from what I hear. Would you like to um, add, make any comments about suicide prevention, Emma, at this time? Oh, well, it's it's um,
2: again, it's a, a profound question and challenging to answer very quickly. My sense is that a, a lot of people who are really in such despair that they would look seriously at the option of suicide, are feeling out of touch with others. In other words, they don't have really trusting relationships in their life where they can just tell it all and know and have full confidence that they'll be fully accepted for exactly where they are in their life and who they are in their life. Because it's, it's when people establish that kind of connection, human connection, with one other person that they that that they uh, feel like they have a lifeline, whether that person comes to them because um, it's it's a peer counselor who answers the phone at a suicide hotline, or is their neighbor, or is their brother or sister, or um, or their psychiatrist, or a coach, or whatever. But it's it's having just even one person where they can tell it all and feel fully accepted, which can create the lifeline, even though that person who is considering death and killing themselves might actually, you know, have many problems that they're trying to sort out. For instance, they don't have enough money or they feel like they've um, really failed in in their intimate relationship or They've failed their children or they're alcoholics, they can't get through it or whatever it is. But, um, essentially it's what you stand for, Valeria, which is, as I hear it, love. Yes. So yes. it's a kind of love that is not connected to sexuality, but is, is a kind of love which offers full
0: acceptance and is available. And I go back always within when I speak speak of love because it starts here it has to start here first with me in order to emanate and um, go out there and reach others do you believe in unconditional self love
2: unconditional self love that's interesting i well i i think that's ultimately a, a fantastic place to get to or let, let me say it's a it, it might be a place that we Cultivate within ourselves that we have a, a, a place we can go to within ourselves where we have unconditional self-acceptance. But if a person, I'm sorry if I'm seeing the downside of things, but <laughs> <laughs> part of my training probably is that you know one way that that can lead to a distortion is is someone saying, "Well, I just I'm I'm fine just the way I am. Everything's cool, and there's there's no desire at all to." Evolve um, on a personal level, or to contribute to other people's lives. It could be, in fact, a a platform in which someone stands in a tremendous amount of egotism without any empathy for what's going on with other people. So my sense is that, yeah, it's a wonderful place to have within ourselves, and also have um, empathy for other people, and a desire for to um, assist the world to, to move into a higher standard of living yes. and uh, the discipline to, to move in that direction and be effective. So there are all kinds of places maybe that we need to cultivate within ourselves, but I certainly would be an advocate of, of everyone having an island of total safety and unconditional self-love within themselves.
0: I believe that love or unconditional self-love has a lot to do with Accepting oneself totally, and from that, helping others to do the same. And it might be just loving yourself as you love others at the same time.
2: Reminds me of um, the the Bible, (laughs) love others as you love yourself. So if there's unconditional love that you can extend to yourself, then you're also in a better position to extend it to others and if people don't have that unconditional self-regard then it's very hard to real truly offer the depth of it to another person
0: yeah i would like to ask you a few more questions but before that would you like to add anything or read a passage from one of your books something i'd li- i'd like to say is that that one of the one of the things
2: that i saw in brazil that was very impactful for me is that I'm, I met several people who had been diagnosed as schizophrenic. That's a very serious, um, diagnosis to give someone. And they had received it because they were hearing voices and because they were, uh, having experiences of seeing things that weren't there for other people in more ordinary states of consciousness. And one of the things that happened when they uh, interacted with the spiritists, spiritist mediums, is that they began to see that they had actual gifts of being intuitives themselves. And they simply needed to get training in order to bring forth their gifts. So in one case, a man by the name of Marcelo, who is Catholic, he had absolutely no framework for this kind of thing and thought, well, if I'm hearing voices, that means I'm just psychotic. That's the way it is. But he entered into um, training with highly trained mediums and became an exceptional um, healer himself. And uh, so to, to know that that kind of transition can happen for people who've been diagnosed as schizophrenic is extraordinary to me. And one reason I keep coming back to the spiritist psychiatry because um, this kind of practice that has led to that success has been going on for 100 years at least.
0: And uh, so it's a good track record. I'd love to see that more integrated in psychiatric hospitals. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? Oh,
2: (laughs) the hardest lesson to learn... Well, one—I think one of the the hardest actually was uh, unconditional love for myself. I, I was brought up in a in a family where there was quite a bit of shame, and um, even though there was intelligence and people working very effectively in the world and and looking from the outside looking as if they have wonderful lives. Uh, it would, from within it, there I could see shame and depression, and uh, a sense of I'm of I'm not enough. I should be more, and a sense of pressure, like I've got to keep pushing myself to become more than I am because I'm not okay the way I am. And um, and so you know, I saw that shadow going on within a life that again looked to probably totally wonderful to people looking from the outside in. <laughs> And so, uh, I, I noticed that the shadow can, can hide itself very, very well. And it certainly did within me. And, um, and I, I had to take advantage of, or not that I had to, but I wanted to take advantage of really good psychotherapy to help me to move, uh, through that kind of shadow. But it's not something that happens overnight. At least it didn't with me. And, uh. So I think it's one of the most important lessons to learn for all of us <laughs> and uh and can be very challenging whether we do therapy or meditation or whatever.
0: <laughs> what is another word for healing?
2: Becoming more whole? Another word and we, just given what you last asked me, maybe b- becoming more fully integrated with the body and treating the body with great care as the vehicle of this life. (laughs) And uh, also acknowledging uh, the importance of the mind, not just the intelligence, but all of our attitudes and emotional responses and um, moving into a a place where we can take responsibility for, for what is in our mind. And that includes also in the heart taking responsibility for what's in the heart and listening to our higher self and becoming whole would also for me in, in include each person answering for themselves. Well, what, what is spirit? Do I have a spirit? Am I a spirit? And then if so, then how do I take care of that part of myself and taking care is a really important concept, yeah, taking care I love that.
0: and cultivating I
2: love, part of myself. I I love that,
0: taking responsibility and taking care of all parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Would you make any change in your life or do anything differently?
2: No, I really
0: feel like I'm,
2: uh, it's not that I'm prepared to die. I'm actually um, very, very healthy and live in a beautiful place and enjoy my life. <laughs> but um, it's actually a question that I've asked myself quite frequently, you know, if, if my life is taken. By some circumstance, am I, would I be ready? And I feel yes. The answer is yes.
0: What are three things about life you know for sure as of now?
2: Well, as I mentioned before, I hate to be a broken record, but as I mentioned before, <laughs> I really do feel that, that this life is, is about holding uh, a balance between a, a personal and consistent communion with Creator as well as a uh, total appreciation of all the gifts of this life that we have. Maybe that's that's both one and, and it's three. Does
0: that answer <laughs> your question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, one in three, three in one. And it has been a peaceful conversation, meaningful, and love your wisdom and love your presence too. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects?
2: Okay. So, um, for my, my personal coaching, the website is emmabragdon.com. And, uh, for the courses that I offer through integrative mental health for you, that website is imhu.org. So we're a not for profit organization.org. And I as in image, M as in Mary, H as in Harry, and U as in Utah dot org. Those two places would would uh, give you more information about what I'm doing and more access as well as a phone number and email. And uh in terms of the books that I've written, I and I've also um produced two documentary films as well as several documentary short documentary films on spiritist psychiatric hospitals. The the books can be accessed through imhu.org in the In what's called the store we don't sell it but (laughs) you'll get links to Uh amazon.com and uh and then the others can be found if if you go into the course on the seminar in brazil and that that gives you ready access to all of the videos that we've
0: created thank you so much again emma and we'll talk soon
2: okay valeria thank you very much it's been a pleasure thank
0: you bye for now
1: Thank you for listening. To learn more about Emma Bragdon, please visit her website, imhu.org. To
0: learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Baisden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.